prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you now. We are hungry and we are thirsty to hear a word from you, Father. I pray that you would prepare our hearts, that you would prepare our minds to receive what you have for us in your word this morning. Bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. How's everyone doing today? Great. Well, I invite everyone to go ahead and take out their sermon guides at this time. Uh, We're in week two of our sermon series entitled, What Would Jesus Say to the Church? And to answer that question, uh, we're looking at Revelation 2 and 3, where Jesus wrote seven letters to seven different churches in Asia Minor 2,000 years ago. And last week, Pastor Duane opened us up by looking at the first letter, which was addressed to the church in Ephesus. And if you remember, uh, Jesus said to the church in Ephesus that they should return to their first love. He encouraged them to remember where they had been and to return to that place of love and devotion. Today, we're going to be traveling to a different city. Today, we're going to be traveling uh, all the way from Hope Covenant Church in Chandler, Arizona, across North America and the Atlantic Ocean and Western Europe, and into a port city on the Aegean Sea called Smyrna. Smyrna is located in modern-day Turkey in the city of Izmir, and 2,000 years ago, uh, Smyrna was this thriving metropolis. It was a big and beautiful city. It was very wealthy. It was very large. It was second only to Ephesus in, in terms of size in all of Asia Minor. Uh, Ephesus and Smyrna were really kind of like the Los Angeles and San Francisco of Asia Minor. It's where uh, all the action was happening. It's where the culture and the influence was. We know from uh, Roman writings and ancient ruins that Smyrna was also filled with Roman architecture and natural beauty. It had a spectacular port for ships. It had Roman archways through an agora, high rolling green hills behind the city, a Roman amphitheater. It even had a literal street of gold in the city. Uh, Many people considered Smyrna one of the most beautiful cities in all the Roman Empire. And the reason for this, in part, was because of the people who lived there. There was about 100,000 citizens in Smyrna, and many of them were the, the movers and the shakers of the day. They were very successful. They were lawyers and politicians and CEOs. And it's within this church, that it's within this city, rather, that there's this young church that Jesus writes to. It's within this city that there's this young church that was probably started only a few decades ago as a result of Paul's ministry in Ephesus, some 30 miles away, that Jesus addresses in our text. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11. Uh, If you didn't bring your Bibles with you this morning, the text will also be on the screen above, and it's in your sermon bulletins as well. Revelation chapter 2 verses 8 through 11. Here's what Jesus has to say to the church in Smyrna. The angel, probably the guardian angel, of the church of Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid about what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison and test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt by the second death. 
The other day I was at home and I was reading uh, the news on my computer and I was reading about uh, what's going on in the Middle East. And as most of you know, uh, in the country of Iraq, there's this terrorist organization called ISIS. And ISIS has begun to uh, take a hold of uh, key towns and cities uh, in the northern part of Iraq. And one of these cities that they've, they've taken a hold of is Mosul. And Mosul is the second largest uh, country in all of Iraq after Baghdad. And interestingly, uh, there's a substantial Christian population in Mosul. And this Christian population uh, is going through a lot of persecution in the past week. Uh, the ISIS troops have begun uh, burning down church buildings. They've begun looting churches. They've even shot some Christians in the streets. And so thousands and thousands of believers in the city of Mosul have fled to outside uh, towns. And for the, for the believers that are still there, they're undergoing severe persecution. You see, the church, the situation in Missoula is very similar to the situation we find in Smyrna. Smyrna was a church that was under pressure. Smyrna was a church that was under persecution. Notice verse 9, Jesus tells us, I know your afflictions and your poverty. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. The, the literal word for afflictions here means to be crushed. And it brings to mind this image of uh, the ancient olive press. I don't know how many of you are uh, familiar with the ancient olive press, uh, but what you would have is you would have this large circular slab, and then you would take a bucket of olives, you would dump it into the slab, and you would push uh, a large rock over the olives until the juices flowed out. And Jesus is telling us in our text that the Christians in Smyrna were being crushed like that. They weren't simply having a bad week. They weren't simply having a bad day. They were under the crushing pressure of afflictions. Waves of suffering were crashing down upon them. It was hitting them from all directions. And to add insult to injury, they were experiencing poverty. Literally, the word for poverty here means complete destitution and grinding poverty. They had nothing at all. They were struggling just to survive. Many people in this church probably were working two jobs to make ends meet. Families were skipping meals and kids were going to work. They were doing whatever it took to get by. So the question is, what's going on here, right? Why is this church that lives in this thriving city, the city of pleasure and entertainment, afflicted? Why is this church that lives in this beautiful city of immense wealth poor? According to Jesus, it's because there are two opponents that have it out for this young congregation. It's because there's two opponents that are trying to throw them under the bus. And the first opponent is this fake Jewish community that are slandering them. Look with me at verse 9. Jesus says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. See, in the city of Smyrna, there was a substantial Jewish population of Jews who had immigrated from Israel and come to Smyrna, and these Jews were influential, they were wealthy, and they were actually exempted from having to worship the emperor like everyone else had to. And initially, the church began within this Jewish community. It began within the synagogues. The church, remember, was not a new religion when it started. It was a Jewish messianic movement. The early Christians clung to ancient Jewish promises. They read from the Jewish scriptures and they followed a Jewish Messiah. 
Now, because the Christian movement started out in this Jewish community, they were kind of shielded under the umbrella of Judaism for some time. But after a while, what happened is the Jews who were rejecting Jesus, these fake Jews, these false Jews, began pushing out the Christians who were in their midst. They began slandering these Christians and going to the local authorities, to the governors and the senators, and telling them lies about this Christian community to get them in trouble. There are many uh, different kinds of accusations that were common during this time. Oftentimes, Christians were accused of being cannibals. Uh, They were accused of being atheists. They were accused of being politically disloyal. And it was these kinds of things that this Jewish community is probably latching on to. But they're not the only opponents that these Christians face. There's another group at work, Satan and his minions. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but they are a synagogue or a community of Satan. Do not be afraid at what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. So what's going on here? Evidently, Satan and his minions were working in and through the situation. They were working in and through the Jewish community to test this young church, to bring suffering to this young church. And one of the ways that the text says they will do this in the near future was by sending some of these Christians into prison. And you did not want to be in prison in the first century. Being in prison meant that you would have been tortured. Being in prison meant that many of you would be executed. The text says that this is coming, but that that suffering was limited. It says the suffering is limited to 10 days. This 10 days probably is not meant to be taken literally. It's symbolic for a short amount of time that these believers have to endure suffering. But they should not fear, Jesus says, for although there's a real enemy, and although they were in a difficult spot, the suffering is limited. Now the question for this young church was very simple. It was how should they respond to these afflictions? Should they pack up their stuff and move to another city? Should they buy weapons and stand their ground? Should they accommodate their faith to save their necks? How should they respond to the afflictions and the poverty? And I think a related question is how should we respond to afflictions and poverty? How should we respond when there are trials and tribulations in life? How does Jesus want us to react in the midst of difficult marriages, empty bank accounts, strained relationships, and opposition at work? Well, he gives us a succinct answer with two words in verse 10. Jesus says, be faithful. How do I want you to react? How do I want you to respond? By being faithful. By being faithful to me. When scripture talks about faithfulness, it refers to an applied faith. It refers to faith and action. Faithfulness is this constant, steadfast allegiance we have with God. It's what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. It's this long obedience where we have this loyalty to Jesus that directs the entire course of our lives, where we keep on believing, we keep on trusting, we keep on fixing our hope to Jesus so that when waves of pain come at us, we are loyal to him. So that when difficult times come in our life, we are faithful to Jesus. And in the midst of Satan coming up against us and people slandering us, we remain faithful. And I think on a human level, many of us get this. Many of us understand the concept of faithfulness on a a horizontal level. Uh, My great-grandfather, his name was John Steele. And John Steele was born in 1901 in Colorado on a big farm. And he had uh, a lot of siblings like most people do when they live on farms. He had five brothers and three sisters. And when he was in his early 30s, 
my great-grandfather John moved from Colorado uh, to the promised land, Southern California. And uh, when he got to Southern California, he got a job breaking horses at a local uh, dairy company. And like many people in his generation, the builder generation, right, those born between 1900 and 1925, he was hardworking and he was loyal and he was other-centered. And eventually he, he, he went on to buy a grocery store and be very successful. But when he was on his deathbed, the entire family was in the room. And at one point in time, he asked for the room to be cleared. And after everybody left the room, he turned to his son, my grandfather, and he looked at him in the eye and he said, son, do I have to worry about mother? And my grandpa looked at him and he said, no, sir, you don't have to worry about her. You see, my grandfather understood the concept of faithfulness. He understood that families stick together through thick and thin. He understood that they sacrifice for one another from the cradle to the grave. That's what they do. And that's why a few years later, him and my grandmother sold their beautiful house a few blocks from the ocean in Seal Beach. And they moved into downtown Long Beach into a crime-ridden, rough neighborhood to live in a small duplex with my great-grandma Hannah, where for five years they cared for her and they loved her and they took her to the grocery store and they were loyal and they were faithful. Our Lord Jesus expects us to be faithful like that. He expects faith in action. He expects a long obedience in the same direction. And in our text, Jesus gives us four reasons why we can be faithful and loyal to him. He gives us four truths, four promises that I believe that if we get a hold of, will help, will help us live faithful lives. The first one is this. You can live a faithful life because Jesus is your supreme Lord. Verse 8. These are the words of him who was the first and the last. Jesus was the first. He was here before creation. He was here before you, and he's the last because through his death and resurrection, he has inaugurated the last days. And so the future hangs on his authority. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 through 7, God is just. He will repay the trouble of those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled. It's a message of hope. And to, those, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with blazing fire with his powerful angels. Jesus is coming back to right all wrongs. He is coming to give relief to these Christians in Smyrna and justice to their persecutors. And the believers in Smyrna needed to know this. They needed to know that Jesus really would turn things around, that Jesus really would make things right. And they especially needed to know that Jesus was good and loving and supreme before they entered the fiery trials ahead of them. You see, oftentimes when we don't know who Jesus is before we enter the trials in front of us, we tend to base our experiences, we tend to base our suffering on our experiences. And we think that what's going on around us is a direct reflection of the character of God. Have you ever done that before? Right? It's easy to do. It's easy to do when we don't have a clear picture of who Jesus is before we enter suffering. And this is exactly why cultivating a prayer life and reading scripture and being part of a small group are so vitally important. It's because in these places, we begin to get a clear picture of the character of Jesus. So that when we face trials, so that when we face tribulations, we're prepared to enter them with Jesus by our side because we know that Jesus is supreme, because we know that Jesus is loving, and because we know that God is good. So knowing who Jesus is prepares us for suffering, but it also does something else. It leads to liberation. 
And here's why. When you know that Jesus is supreme, it doesn't matter what life brings your way because Christ is yours. And when you know that Jesus is supreme, you don't have to fear because nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And when you know that Jesus is supreme, you don't have to strive like the rest of the world. I mean, if you look around us, everyone is striving for something, right? They're striving to maybe create a certain image on Facebook. They're they're striving to create a certain image or to please someone with the clothes they wear or with the stuff they own. They're craving the validation from their friends. They're craving uh, envy from their enemies. And all the while, they're under this intense pressure to please other people. They're under this intense pressure to find worth in the eyes of others. And this is what the unbelievers, the rich unbelievers in Smyrna were doing. This is what people are doing in our world, in Chandler, Arizona. And to them and to us, Jesus says, stop it. You don't have to prove yourself to anyone. I am the Supreme Lord. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the most important being in the universe, and I already accept you. I already love you. There's no pressure. All you have to do is be faithful to me. Jesus says all we have to do is to be loyal to him, and that should be an incredible sense of of liberation and freedom to live a simpler life, to not have to, to put on a mask, to not have to please other people. Our sole focus in this life is to be faithful to Jesus. Verse 8 goes on to tell us something something else about Jesus. Another reason we can be faithful. We can be faithful because these are the words of him who died and came to life. These are the words of him who died and came through death and came out the other end and was resurrected. First, Jesus died just as the church has suffered many things. Persecution, shattering events, and the loss of loved ones. Jesus is affirming that he suffered as well. He is the one who was dead and sprang to life. He knows what this church is going through. He knows what this church in Smyrna is going through, and he knows what we're going through. Hebrews 2.10 says that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. How is Jesus made perfect? I thought he already was perfect, right? Well, Jesus was perfect in a moral sense, but Jesus wasn't perfect in a relational sense. You see, by putting on flesh, by living as, as we do, and by dying on the cross, Jesus is now able to understand and empathize and relate to us in a whole new way. Jesus understands what we're going through. Jesus was resurrected from the dead, and for thousands of years, his death and resurrection has been the source of strength and a model to follow for many believers. One of these believers was sitting in the church in Smyrna when this letter was read 2,000 years ago. He was just a young boy, and his name was Polycarp. And Polycarp, several decades later, became the bishop of Smyrna. And in 155 AD, during the public games in Smyrna, where there was a lot of action, there was a lot of commotion, somebody grabbed Polycarp by the neck, and they threw him in prison, and they started slandering him. They started saying that Polycarp was an atheist. And so they gave him the death sentence. They said that he was going to be publicly burned at the stake in front of the entire city. And so they put Polycarp in front of the whole city and they gave him one last chance to recant, one last chance to save his skin. All he had to do was to declare that Caesar was king and to make a sacrifice to him. And in response, here's what Polycarp said. 86 years I have served Christ and he has done me no wrong. How can I blasphemy my king who saved me? How can I blaspheme my king who died and was resurrected for me? 
How can I blaspheme this king who has made me whole, this king who has wiped away all my sin, who has brought me close to God? Jesus is both worth living for and worth dying for. The second reason we can be faithful is because Jesus died and came to life again. The third reason is because Jesus knows our situation. Verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus says, I know. He says, I know your afflictions. I know about those people who are slandering you. I know. I know all about it. I know what you're going through. I know what you're suffering. I know about your persecution. I know the hardships that you are enduring. I've seen everything you are going through. Nothing has escaped me. And Jesus knows all of your afflictions as well. Jesus knows all of the things that you are going through as well. He pays attention to your little corner of the world. He intimately understands your temptations and your bad days and your hard relationships and your disappointments. None of your sufferings has gone unnoticed. Nothing has escaped his watchful eye. And I think we have to remind ourselves of this, especially during those times when God seems distant. But it gets better. Not only does Jesus know, but catch this. He calls us rich, which is, which is absolutely amazing. He calls us rich in spirit. He calls us rich in the grand scheme of things. I mean, imagine if uh, somebody at work, maybe uh, in this next week, came up to you and said, uh, Andy, I think you're rich. And this person was just an acquaintance of Andy's. Uh, that might kind of feel sort of good a little bit. We like compliments. But Andy might also be thinking, this person doesn't really know me, Right? This person doesn't really know uh, my flaws and my failures and my skeletons. So while it might feel good, it only feels so good. But Jesus Christ knows you better than you know yourself. Jesus Christ knows about sins and failures that you don't even know exist. And yet he looks you in the face and he doesn't laugh or yawn, but he says you are rich. He says that I love you. He says that I accept you. Where else are we going to find that kind of love? Where else are we going to encounter that kind of Savior, friends? Jesus knows us. He loves us. He declares that we are rich. Finally, we can be faithful because Jesus will reward us. Verse 10, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, which is all of us, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt by the second death. For the church in Smyrna and for us, suffering will only last a limited amount of time. The end is in sight. Peace is coming. A reward is on its way. To the faithful, they will receive life as a victor's crown. And the image uh, that, John is, or that Jesus rather, is using here is the victory wreath uh, that athletes would receive uh, when they competed in games. Uh, the winners would receive a victory crown. They would receive status and honor and glory. And to those who are victorious, they'll receive that as well. This is what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 25. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. This crown is symbolic of eternal life. To those who are victorious, they will receive the crown of eternal life with God, eternal life and fellowship in the presence of God, and they will not be hurt by the second death. They will not be eternally separated from God forever. 
That's the promise that you and I are called to latch on to. That's the promise that you and I are called to live in light of. When I was uh, 15 and a half, I got my driver's license permit. Does anybody remember getting their driver's license permits? Yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> it was like two months ago, wasn't it? Um, yeah, you do because uh, it, it's a very scary time in one sense, but it's a very exciting time uh, at, at the same time, right? And I remember uh, learning how to drive, and uh, one of the reasons it was so scary for me is because my dad was the one uh, that was teaching me to drive. He was the one in the passenger seat, and my dad uh, has driven a semi-truck for Coca-Cola for 30 years, so he knows how to drive, and, uh, you know, and he was sometimes very critical. And I remember this one day, uh, we were transitioning from surface streets to the freeway. And I don't know how many of you remember driving on the freeway for the first time, but it's just absolutely terrifying. You know, you feel like your life is just hanging by a string. I remember uh, I was behind the wheel and, you know, we got on and we, we, I was able to merge onto the 405 safely, which I was really scared of. And, and eventually, you know, we're going down the 405 and I'm going like 55 miles an hour in the slow lane, you know, holding, holding the wheel at, uh, was it 10 and 3, 10 and 4? I didn't listen very well. And then I was looking around at the cars uh, around me, and I remember something my dad said. I remember a piece of advice that he gave me that I'll never forget. He looked over and he said, Brandon, when you're driving, you need to have a long-range vision. You need to have a long-range vision. Don't be so caught up in your immediate surroundings that you miss what's coming down the road. He said, he said, sometimes you need to look 100, 200, 300 feet down the road. That way, if there's a sea of brake lights or a tire moving across the road or a sign that you need to see, you'll have plenty of time to react. And all of us need to cultivate a long-range vision in life. Faithfulness requires a long-range vision. Faithfulness requires hope in the future so we don't get lost in the present. This means living our life in light of the promises of God. It means looking forward to the day when you and I will stand before the creator of the universe and hear those sweet words from Matthew 25, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful handling this small amount. Now I will give you more responsibilities. Let's celebrate or let's party together. Let's crank up the music. Let's open a bottle of uh, sparkling cider and eat and drink and be merry because you were found faithful, right? Because you were found faithful. Because you lived this life and at the end of it, you were found faithful. And I don't know about you, but that is the deep desire of my heart. Not to waste my life, but to invest it so that someday I can stand before Jesus and I can receive the victory crown and I can receive eternal life and hear those words, good job, my good and faithful servant. This morning, Jesus is calling us to be faithful. He's not calling us to be perfect. He's not calling us to be mistake-free, but he is calling us to be faithful. He is asking for there to be an upward trajectory of faithfulness in our lives. And sometimes I know it's, it's hard to see that faithfulness in the present. Sometimes we don't see that faithfulness in this life, but we will in the next. Years ago, I had the opportunity to travel to Europe and uh, for those of you who've been there before, you'll know that the churches in Europe are very different than the churches here, right? They don't have these kind of multi-purpose buildings with basketball hoops and recess lighting. They have these grand, majestic cathedrals that were built hundreds of years ago that have stained glass windows and gargoyles and statues of saints and vaulted ceilings. 
And these, these cathedrals took decades and sometimes centuries to build and to construct. It would begin when an architect drew up plans and then passed those instructions on to a team of masons. One mason would uh, carve rocks out of a quarry. Another one would craft rocks for gargoyles or statues of saints. While another one would shape big blocks for a big tower. Now, in the midst of this process, the stonemasons were told to carve a block of stone this way or that, and he would do it, and after he was finished, he would take that block and he would hand it over without necessarily knowing where it would end up in the completed cathedral. See, oftentimes these masons didn't even live long enough to see the final product. The stonemason had to trust the architect. The stonemason had to trust that his work would not be wasted, that somehow his work would fit in to this grand, beautiful design, and because of that, his work was enhanced and more valuable. And friends, you will not see the full effects of your faithfulness in this life. You don't know the full impact of living a simple and godly life, of changing diapers, of eating dinner with your family, of tithing, of reading Bible stories, of giving to those in need, and loving your enemies. Sometimes it might even seem like you're not making much of a difference in this life. Sometimes it might even seem like your faithfulness really isn't leading to much. And if that's you, God's invitation is keep on chiseling away. Because keep on being faithful and trust that the architect, King Jesus, knows what he's doing. And that someday he will fit your life and work into this beautiful cathedral that he is creating. Someday you and I will be in the new heavens and the new earth. And you will be able to look back and see the entire cathedral that God has built over history. You'll get a chance to see how your steady faithfulness, how your patient chiseling has created integral blocks in God's glorious masterpiece. Please pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have invited us to be loyal and to be faithful and to be true to you. And that's the desire of our hearts this morning. Father, I pray that you would show us what faithfulness looks like at the dinner table tonight, at work, in the office tomorrow, as we interact with our kids and those people that kind of bother us later in this week, Father. I pray that your spirit would show us how we are called to be faithful and true to you. I pray that you would give us a laser focus on being faithful and being true and live lives that are glorious and honoring to you so that someday we can stand before your throne and be found faithful, so that someday we can hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Father, I pray that your spirit would inspire us, would encourage us, and would empower us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.